Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. The Israel-Hamas war has driven much of the world to despair. On October the 7th, over 2,000 Hamas terrorists entered Israeli territory through 29 breaches in the barrier surrounding the Gaza Strip. They carried out scarcely describable atrocities, torturing and killing 1,400 men, women and children, and kidnapping some 200 Israeli citizens as hostages. In retaliation, the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu has committed to destroying Hamas, unleashing an overwhelming series of air attacks against Hamas's base of Gaza, announcing a complete siege, cutting off food, water and fuel, and sending troops into the ruined strip of land. Gaza's health ministry, which is run by Hamas, says that more than 10,000 people have been killed, many of them children. United Nations calls for a ceasefire are being ignored by an Israeli government which argues that it faces an existential threat from Hamas, and the US fears that the war could spill over into a regional conflict with Iran and its proxies in Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. It is a dismal and terrifying prospect, with seemingly no resolution in sight. But eventually, when the dust settles and the dead are buried, there will have to be a settlement of some kind. Beyond extremist absolute solutions, is there any way at all to end the generational hatreds and the mess of territorial claims and counterclaims that seem to have doomed the region to endless violence? With me is someone who thinks there is a solution, in the medium term at least. Friend of the podcast, Jason Pack, is a senior analyst for emerging challenges at the NATO Defence College Foundation. He's the host of the Disorder podcast, which looks at our destabilised world, and he's the author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. He's just written a piece for the Boston Globe, headlined, Qatar is the key to peace in post-war Gaza. And he's here with me now. Hi, Jason. Great to be back with you, Andrew. Good to have you here. So before we talk about how to end this conflict, let's, let's put it into context. Even a fairly engaged British person will think that this is a region where conflict is endemic. You know, it's it appears to be never-ending. Apart from the, the the scale and the the the... the the brutality of the current violence. What is different this time politically? What is behind it that is different from similar spates we've seen in the region? Well, politically, militarily, and humanitarily, I would say that it is different in kind, not just in degree. Mm -hmm. So there were five major Arab-Israeli wars in 48, 56, 67, 73, and you could say in 82. And those were wars of armies against armies. This is obviously a, an incursion of a terrorist group that committed an atrocity and has now led to an asymmetrical conflict. So that's fundamentally different. Then we have a series of conflicts that the Israelis have waged since 1982 against non-state actors like Hamas and Hezbollah. So there have been rounds of Israel-Hamas confrontations where the Israelis invade Gaza. They try to do a destruction of Hamas or kill some key leaders, but they never get the whole thing. And that's called mowing the lawn because the very nature of, you know, mowing the lawn is the grass grows back. So in terms of scale and scope, Netanyahu has, I think, in a, in a mistake, committed himself to eradicating Hamas. But Hamas is more an ideology than merely a set of individuals. And I don't think that there is a military solution to doing that. Um, the Israelis have never been able to eradicate Hezbollah merely by you know, occupying southern Lebanon for a period of time and and, and destroying some rocket launchers. Mm. Many Israelis blame the attack on Benjamin Netanyahu, firstly for funding Hamas in sort of trying to buy calm in, in Gaza with grants, and then by effectively distracting the Israeli army from protecting the borders with his attempts to ram through constitutional changes. Do, do you concur? Is that a reasonable analysis? 
I do. I mean, one of the things that we look at on my disorder podcast is the way in which domestic disorder, say over Brexit in this country or between Trump and anti-Trump forces in America, leaves societies weak. And it then weakens them so that they don't even function properly. I thought that despite how divisive Netanyahu was as a figure, despite how his judicial reforms were leading to mass civil unrest and protests and saying that he's trying to, to eliminate Israeli democracy, that at least the Israeli security forces, you know, could spot threats and would work correctly. But apparently they couldn't. And that was because Many reservists were on strike and the reservists are overrepresented in the intelligence services. And Netanyahu has a lot of these um, radical settlers in his cabinet, the you know, famous Smotrich and, and Ben Gvir. And they were leading to settlers doing random violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. And all those factors meant that Netanyahu had so polarized the Israeli society that it was, it was prostrate. It was dysfunctional and open to attack by the outside. Yeah. And this is presumably why Hamas chose now to act rather than any other time because Israel simply looked weak. They were strategically astute, which is that they understood that by having extreme right-wing elements in his cabinet, Netanyahu had frayed his relationship to his classical Western supporters and that at this moment in specific – the ability of Israel to be integrated into the region could be undercut. And because there are these right-wingers at the top in Israel, it wouldn't look so great for the Saudis to be negotiating with these quote-unquote Israeli butchers who have quote-unquote overreacted. So that calculus is something that they nailed. And the prospect of Saudi-Israeli normalization is – really on the back burner because of Hamas's understanding the strategic context in which this is unfolding. And I fear as an American that there's yet another dimension, which is that the way that this plays out in the US and in the global West is diverting us from the Ukraine war. And therefore, the axis of disorderers that we talk about on my podcast understand that if you push in certain points, it's like a great guy who's good at acupuncture. He hits a key point and it has a certain effect. This is a fissure in the Western system that will divide lots of our allies from each other and make collaborating against Putin much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So to kind of to look ahead, uh, your kind of your key to this, in a way, is that um, the people who have to take responsibility for Gaza uh, will be neither Hamas nor Israel, but will actually be a coalition of Arab regimes: the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Saudis, and the Egyptians. Can, can you say a little bit more about this? Because this seems, to someone like me, a kind of layperson, this seems kind of left field. Well, many things that come into being in this world, Andrew seem impossible beforehand. If in the middle of World War II, you said the French and Germans are going to be allied in a super state and they're going to have common trade relations and use that to pacify all of Europe, you'd say, this is out of the field. This is insane. Mm -hmm. But that's what the European coal community did in creating the European Union. And if you said during World War II that the Germans and Japanese were going to become close allies of America and Britain, again, it seems crazy. My problem with the diplomacy that is mostly American-led at this moment is it's focused on the hyper short-term and the hyper long-term. Let me give you an example. So when people are protesting in the streets here in London, frequently they're like, hey, we need to get a ceasefire 
Or we need to let these aid convoys go through, you know, the Rafah crossing in the Egyptian Gazan border. And okay, that's good. I agree with that. That doesn't solve the underlying root causes of the conflict. And then Blinken goes and he's in Turkey today, Monday, and he meets with his Turkish counterpart and they talk about a two-state solution and the settlers and whatever. I think you can't solve those long-term issues right now. And if you deal with just the short-term issues, that doesn't deal with the, the things that generate the conflict. There's really been an absence in dealing with the question of the day after the war, the immediate medium term when the Israelis decide, okay, we've done our operation, time to withdraw. And the reason why I'm not so focused on long-term or short-term is I don't think that Western states have much leverage over Israel right now in those domains. But in the medium-term domain, the Israelis have admitted to Blinken and Sunak and others that they don't have a plan for post-war governance of Gaza. So if Israel's allies can give it some tough love, America and Britain in specific, and work with our regional allies like the Gulf states and Egypt and Jordan and Morocco, we could create a solution for this day after, which will alleviate a lot of pressure of, say, an Israeli occupation that would then cause a situation like in Iraq where people are just constantly getting killed and, and attacking the occupying authorities. So what does this coalition look like? I, I think you talked in your piece about um, them overseeing reconstruction, rooting out Hamas, which is interesting to have Arab states charged with rooting out Hamas and then setting up for elections in the in the longer medium term. You know, A, what does it look like? And B, don't you have a problem in, in that Hamas is, is kind of popular within Gaza and is actually made more popular by uh, Israeli attacks? Those things are both true. But the majority of the Gazan population do not support Hamas and they're tired of their 15 years of corrupt, venal, uh, ideological rule. The key thing is to have a coalition of Arab states. It, it's long been discussed since the Israeli Hitnat Kut in 2005 and that's the withdrawal that Sharon did from Gaza unilaterally, a disengagement, where he's like, we're just not going to be bothered with governing Gaza anymore. It's long been thought that that was a mistake and it should have had – Egyptian or Egyptian in Saudi or Egyptian in Saudi and Emirati role in the administration of Gaza. However, my wrinkle in other words, so that, that's a plan that's discussed in Washington. My wrinkle is to involve the Qataris and, and, and why is that so significant? The Egyptian regime under Sisi, the Saudi regime under MBS and the Emirati regime under MBZ are committed to an anti-Muslim brotherhood agenda. Since the Arab Spring, they have backed a series of tyrants and warlords who oppose the Muslim brotherhood. So we're talking about General Haftar in Libya, the strongman dictator Sisi in Egypt. And, and just to be clear, the Muslim brotherhood is scarcely an organizational an umbrella ideology under which is Hamas, yeah? Correct. So the Muslim Brotherhood are Sunni Islamists who derive from the thoughts of, for example, Sayyid Qutb, uh, a famous uh, Islamic thinker from Egypt. But since 2011, you've seen a cold war of hardcore anti-Muslim Brotherhood states and pro-Muslim Brotherhood states. Obviously, the anti-Muslim Brotherhood states, the Israelis and Americans are more willing to work with them. And hence, there have been these ideas of having, say, the Emiratis or the Saudis or the Egyptians try to administer Gaza. My novelty is to involve the Qataris. The Qataris have funded the Muslim Brotherhood. They house the Hamas political leadership. And they have credibility in Gaza because they spent more than a billion dollars on its reconstruction and its infrastructure. 
But since the new emir who took over in 2013 has been in power, he's gradually been getting rid of his father's advisors, trying to not fund more extreme Muslim Brotherhood-linked groups, and to cultivate more and more ties with his other Gulfi neighbors. So in 2017, with kind of Trump's blessing, the anti-Qatari forces initiated a blockade of Qatar. Only in January 2021 did that blockade come to an end, and there's been a normalization between Qatar and her Gulf state neighbors. We can build on that normalization. The Qataris give the credentials that are needed to have a Sunni Islamism, which is quietist. I can see the kind of high politics of this. I have two questions jump immediately to mind. Firstly, what are the chances? And secondly, how does Israel feel about saying uh, we're going to hand over responsibility for political and physical reconstruction of Gaza to a state that was until recently funding the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, you're in good company by asking those two questions. So the day after I wrote my Boston Globe piece, I kid you not, I got an email from a Massachusetts congressperson who said, when is the earliest moment I can speak to you? (laughs) And without saying who this was, serious individual. And the two questions he asked after I gave him my briefing are essentially what you've now asked. Okay. Does this mean mean I can be a congressman now? You might have to change the accent a little bit. Okay. We'll work on that. (laughs) So I want to go back and say nothing seems reasonable right now. The idea of militarily purging Hamas from Gaza. Uh Impossible. The idea of occupying Gaza directly for the Israelis and somehow not facing a resistance movement is as fanciful as that the Americans could re- remove Saddam, govern Iraq, and never get a yeah. single resistance fighter. It's, it's, it's impossible. The idea that we can instantly turn it over to the Palestinian Authority when Mahmoud Abbas is 86 years old and is entirely discredited and he'd be taking over on the back of Israeli bayonets. Also, guess what, Andrew? Impossible. Mm-hmm. So m- what my idea has is a degree of possibility. And if you look at it from a cuttery perspective, so the cutteries are the linchpin here. We know that we can get the Saudis and Emiratis to not only foot the bill but do various things. The question is, have the cutteries wanted to show that they are responsible world citizens and have a lot of prestige? Yes, they did that with the 2022 World Cup of football. They negotiated the release of some Ukrainian hostages. They did the American hostages in Iran. They mediated the Ukrainian-Russian grain deal that many people don't know. The Qataris want to be a superpower of mediation and they want to shed their ties. The young Amir is is my age. He's 43. He wants to be able to say, look, I helped the Palestinians, but I'm a core constituent of the coalition of global order. And the, the key to making it all work, to fit it all together, is to unite the orderers against the disorderers. And and people incorrectly today say that we have a struggle between authoritarianism and democracy. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. It's orderers and disorderers. The Qataris are not Democrats. The Emiratis are not Democrats. But they do want to live in an ordered regional environment, and they don't want these kind of mass outrages going on. So I think that they can be made with the carrot of certain... Uh, publicity and the stick of sanctions for non-compliance, like if they go back to hosting Hamas, through carrots and sticks, this coalition can be put together. What sort of appetite is there 
uh, amongst the Qataris. I have to say Qatari because I'm not as good at pronunciation as you are. What kind of appetite is there amongst the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Saudis and the Egyptians for this kind of adventure? Despite the fact that Qatar has only 300,000 citizens, there is an appetite to be a medium power mm-hmm. and a major regional power. So if they can be sold to host a conference in Doha where they are presiding over a solution, yes, I think they'll go for it. Would the Emiratis or the Saudis want to play second fiddle to the Qataris? No, but they can be given the ability to lead on another way. The Emiratis can lead on an Abraham Accords 2.0. What they loved about the first Abraham Accords was that they were leading in them. The problem with those Abraham Accords is that they ignored the Palestinians. So these new Abraham Accords will say, we guarantee Palestinian sovereignty after a mandatory transition period. And now all this comes back to why will the Israelis go for this? And, and that was the second question that you shared with the congressman. I think essentially because they will be forced to. How do I mean? We can't now, as America or Britain, tell the Israelis, don't bomb this area where there's some Hamas guys because there's too much collateral damage. They simply will bomb it and it will fray our relations. But at the end of the war, Israel is going to need her allies, America and Britain, to do their regional diplomacy. And what they really want is to have a coalition against Iran and the destabilizing actors. And Netanyahu is going to be a goner at the end of this war. And we're going to have the rise of more moderate forces, whether it's Benny Gantz, who has been brought into the coalition government, or Yair Lapid, the secularist from the Shinui party. We're going to have people that we can more work with at the end of this, Andrew. And the last thing that they want to do is to do a neo-colonial occupation of Gaza. They're already accused of having done one. They haven't, but they don't want to do it. So we need to give them the tough love to set up what might work behind the scenes. But if I'm Iran, am I not just going to say, well, Congratulations, you just replaced a neo-colonial occupation by uh, Israel and the West with a neo-colonial occupation by uh, Qatar, the Emirates, the Saudis and the Egyptians. And when Hamas has come up under the Muslim Brotherhood, under the sponsorship of Iran, you know, the uh, the cynic, the pessimist would say, you're setting yourself up for yet another uh, localized guerrilla war just with a uh, a different party at the top. Well, it's not only the Iranians who will say that. My colleagues in D.C. who are on the extreme left and our scholars tell me that Mm. that's the problem with my plan. But I want to push back here that it won't be Islamically legitimate. Keep in mind that the Iranians are Shia and they don't have much legitimacy in Gaza. That's why they fund this very kind of radical Sunni Islamist Hamas If you have the Saudis who are the guardians of the two holy places and the Qataris who have a legacy of working with Islamist movements, that solution will be legitimate in a Sunni context and much more legitimate than the Iranian offerings of Hezbollah and Hamas are. Yes, it may be seen as neo-colonial, but if you would go and do a vox pop in Gaza, who would you rather be ruled by? The Israelis, the Americans, the Iranians, or a coalition of the Gulf states who are going to provide scholarships so that people who do well in Gaza and high school can study in Europe, or you can get more work visas to go work in the Gulf. Who do you think the Gazans are going to go for? I'm talking about a medium-term solution here, more than five, less than 10 years, which will lead to Palestinian elections. People who have rushed these post-conflict states to elections Like in Egypt or Libya, you've had various backlashes. In Libya, the democracy completely collapsed and we have an ongoing war of post-Qaddafi succession. And in Egypt, first 
the Muslim Brotherhood candidate Morsi was voted in, and then there was a coup against him. We don't want to rush them to elections. Build things up, and then we can have elections. Good news, your favorite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Some listeners might say this is a solution that involves Gaza changing a lot and Israel not changing very much at all. A, would they be wrong? And B, do you think you know, do you think that Israeli society, you alluded earlier to Israeli society, are about to undergo a major change. Do you think Israel will be ready to accept that? I think there are two parts to that question. You know, so the, the, the Israelis are going to have to give up some concessions. But what they're going to get for this is a guarantee that they can have a big Abraham Accords 2.0 and they can be a part of the region at the end of the process, right? And that that's something that a center-left PM uh, a Gantz or a Lapid or, or a Herzog is going to want to deliver. So they're going to have to acknowledge Palestinian sovereignty over all of Gaza and most of the West Bank, the whole territorial area of the West Bank, but with some ability for um, you know, territorial swaps. So that's like a big compromise. There's going to have to be a no new settlement clause in this and that if they don't do it, the Americans will not give them aid. Don't underestimate how much that's to give up for the Israelis, and they're going to have to deal with the right-wing nutcases yeah. inside Israel. But I think that that's a process that's going to be happening naturally. As to the other part of your question, Israeli society, so unfortunately, yes, in Israel right now, there is going to be a no compromise. We cannot trust any Arabs to do our security. However, the argument there is that they couldn't trust any Israelis with their security yeah. anyway because the greatest security failure in Israeli history happened while you had securocrats in charge. Um, the right-wing settler parties were never popular, but now that they've been in government, they're even less popular. And I think new coalitions can emerge to keep them out of power. That's why you need a medium-term solution. And if there's a medium-term solution that delivers no terrorist attacks from Gaza, I think that that can begin to change things. Well, listeners, if it happens, you heard it here first. Um, Jason, I think that's the first vaguely encouraging thing I've heard since this whole horror show began. So thanks so much for joining us. We'll Great see how to be this, here. We'll see how this plays out. Uh, and of course, the Disorder podcast is available right now and it's a very good listen. If you enjoyed listening to Jason right now, give it give it a go. Also, if you're in the mood for podcasts on a totally different theme, may we recommend Why, W-H-Y, the brand new science and technology podcast from Podmasters. Every edition of Why answers a different big question from the frontiers of knowledge. Everything from a human still evolving to is time itself real? It's a fantastic listen. Follow the link in the show notes or go to whypodcast.co.uk now. I've been Andrew Harrison. See you next time on The Bunker. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison. The producer was Liam Tate. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. 
and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>